Washington Post and Dismog.com recently published hit pieces attacking Alex Epstein, energy expert and author of the forthcoming book, Fossil Future, a book that argues powerfully that the world needs to be massively expanding its use of fossil fuel energy, not cutting it. Instead of engaging with Epstein's arguments, the Post and Dismog, in collaboration with self-styled watchdog group Documented, dug up pro-individualism articles that Epstein wrote as a teenager more than 20 years ago and tried to insinuate that these reveal some sort of vague bigotry against non-Western cultures. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today we're going to be discussing this attempted character assassination and what it reveals about just the sorry state of today's debate over climate and energy. So I'm Keith Lockich, and with me is Ankar Gatte, my colleague at ARI. And of course, uh, we're excited to have Alex Epstein joining us as well. In addition to the great work he's doing today, Alex is a former fellow so he's a, of, of the Ayn Rand Institute, so he's a former colleague of ours here, and we're excited to have you back. Welcome, and thanks for joining us, Alex. Uh, thanks, really excited to have this discussion. Yeah, I just wanted to mention also, we're trying something new today. We are normally, we are simulcasting on Clubhouse. So we've uh, normally, we have our podcast and then we go off to Clubhouse to have a after party follow-up discussion. Today we're, we're trying something new where we're streaming the audio into Clubhouse already. Um, and then we're gonna do the after party as well afterwards. I don't think Alex will be able to join us, but Ankar and I will uh, go there. So if you're watching, if you're listening on Clubhouse, we'll be, we won't be able to take questions from on Clubhouse during the podcast, but in the after party, we'll, we'll be there and we can talk about, we'll take your comments and questions afterwards. So I, I like that okay. it's a party. That's yeah. After party. <laughs> uh, I wanted to start on a, on a positive note, we're going to be talking about these hit pieces and so on, but before we sort of descend into the muck, um, I wanted to start by congratulating you on your book, Alex, you very kindly sent me a review copy. Um, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. I haven't quite finished it yet, uh, but this is a really, I think this is a really important book and I, I can see how much work you've put into it because you've developed systematically a very powerful argument over 400 pages. And it's an argument that if people think they've heard all the arguments related to climate and energy. They have no idea um, what they're missing out on because you, you're making arguments in this book that I've just, I've, never, I've been following this issue for a couple of you know, decades, just like you. And I've never seen these kinds of arguments being made about this issue. So I just wanted to start by congratulating you on an excellent piece of work. Well, well, well thank you. And so, you know, you were one of the people who introduced me to a certain way of thinking about this issue and then, uh, you know, back in, in 2007, when I, you know, when I was just starting to get interested in energy and you were doing, you know, you were the one who really uh, introduced me, you know, to Inder Goklani and the whole body of research about climate related disaster deaths. And you had a really good piece on that. And then of course, Ankar is credited in both acknowledgements of both books as having a really a formative influence. And uh, I was lucky enough to get his, him uh, to help me with the second book, which was just uh, amazing. And you know, I think shaped everything that's good. It shaped. If there's something bad, I won't. I won't give him the blame. It's like God. And, right? he, he, yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was just gonna say. I mean, we should start off with this because this is the tragedy of the hit pieces. Is if you're thinking of, from the point of view of the say the Washington Post audience. They deserve to, when there's new work being done and new arguments and things they haven't heard before. The reason you should want to read the Washington Post and New York Times is that they're exposing you to a range of informed views from which then you can think, pursue further. And, so and nothing like that is done in these pieces. And that it, even if you leave aside the hit element to it, it's, it's a dereliction of duty in terms of what they should be doing. They're just, it's such a failure. Well, and that was actually where I wanted to start because I think there's a certain irony here because one of the major themes of the book is that what you call our knowledge system, Alex, of which the media is a component, 
completely fails to give us the full context when it comes to the issues of climate and energy. And the result is that the information that we get about you know, what the human impact on climate is, what, um, what the role of fossil fuels is in our lives, the realities of energy production, the information that we get about this um, is basically full of at best half truths and at worst just outright lies and distortions. And so there's a certain irony to the fact that they're writing an article about you and the book, <laughs> and, and that's exactly what we're getting here. So I, I thought it would be useful to start off with um, giving our listeners the opportunity to hear some of the things that are in the book that we're not getting from these articles. So uh, when you talk about the fact that we're not getting the full context when it comes to climate and energy, what are some of the things that you would want to want people to know and would want to bring out there? Uh, sure. Thanks for asking. So, yeah, I think the idea of knowledge system is something that I, I developed and it was, you know, I found it very clarifying. And when I've been talking about it in initial interviews or the few people who've read the book have found it very clarifying. So let me just say something about that. And you can think of this, this often comes up in the context of expert knowledge, because, you know, there's this question of what do we do about fossil fuels, which provide most of the world's energy, and yet in particular have this side effect of emitting CO2, which has a warming impact on the global climate system. So there's, you know, real question there. And there's other pollution issues, but the climate issue is the one that most people are concerned about. And I think the usual thing is, well, the experts have told us, like we're, we're told that the experts say, we need to rapidly eliminate fossil fuels, particularly it often goes by net zero by 2050. So essentially there need to be no CO2 emissions by 2050. And the idea is, well, this is the expert view. This is the expert's evaluation of what to do. And since we're not experts, we can't really question that. And then somebody like Alex Epstein comes along and he's saying, no, it's the opposite, right? We should actually be increasing our emissions going forward by increasing uh, fossil fuel use, assuming there's no way of capturing them, which I argue there's not cost effectively in the, in the near term. Like that seems like you should just dismiss that uh, out of hand. Uh, but what I point out is, so we, and the plausibility of that is we need expert knowledge to actually make good decisions. That is incontrovertible. Um, but then what we can also observe is that at different points in history, what we're told the experts think uh, can be disastrously wrong. So things like slavery, uh, eugenics, you know, even Nazism had large, uh, what, you know, had widespread support and including among many so-called experts. And so we have this thing where we need experts, but yet what we're told the experts say we should do uh, can be very wrong. And I think the way of resolving this is to recognize that what we're told the experts say we should do is a, is a function of what I call our knowledge system. It's not simply that the researchers just automatically know what to do. It's that there are basically four phases that go from doing the research that makes you an expert to actually determining a course of action. Any one of those can go wrong. So the main ones are research. So it's the actual specialists researching the specifics of a given field. So that could be energy researchers, climate researchers. But then crucially, they don't really communicate with us and they don't even know everything themselves. What has to happen is synthesis. So you have synthesizers. So in the realm of energy, it could be the International Energy Agency. In the realm of climate, it could be the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And what they're charged with doing is they're charged with synthesizing what are the most important and valid views in the field. And if you recognize that synthesis, there can be a lot of distortion there. There can be political factors, there can be honest factors. And then at synthesis, after synthesis, there are disseminators. So this would be the Washington Post, and New York Times. Even if synthesis is right, the disseminators could be very distorting of it. And I think, you know, you could argue this happened in different ways with, with COVID, but it certainly happens with climate. It's notorious that there's something called a summary for policymakers of the IPCC synthesis reports. And that summary is almost universally recognized as this is an exaggeration of what's in the synthesis. And then crucially, there's a step of evaluation. So even once, you know, whatever the disseminated truth is, however true or distorted that is, or however validly reflecting the research or however distorted that is, there's this question of what to do about it. And I think here COVID provides a very clear example where there's this idea of zero COVID, like we want to eliminate all risk from COVID. That's a value judgment. That's deciding, hey, I'm prioritizing eliminating this over everything else. So you could have two people who have the exact same assessment of COVID's nature, but they could have very different evaluations of what to do about it because 
they, they have, you know, one thing is they could have a different standard by which they're measuring value. They could have a method in which they're not looking at the full context, which I'll talk about in a second. So the, the key thing to get is even if all the researchers are right and there are ways they can get distorted too, what we're told is the expert evaluation of what to do can be totally wrong. So in the case of COVID, it could be, yes, even if all the researchers know, and I don't think this is exactly true, but they know like, hey, this is a really serious threat. They agree on that. You could still get the evaluation of we should lock everyone down, and that could be totally the wrong way to respond to that. And so what I'm arguing, I, I introduced that concept for many reasons, but including to open people's minds to the possibility that what we're taught about fossil fuels can be very wrong. And, and the one thing I'll say that I think is most obviously wrong is this issue of evaluation with the full context, which is that we are taught to that we should rapidly eliminate fossil fuels. And yet that evaluation almost exclusively considers the alleged negative side effects of fossil fuels, namely climate impact, but it ignores the benefits. And so an example of that that's very relevant right now is agriculture. Uh, Michael Mann, one of the leading climate activists and most famous climate scientists in the world, he has a book called The Madhouse Effect, and he talks about the future of fossil fuels and climate and agriculture. And he talks all about the alleged negative consequences, which it's okay to talk about that, of course, if he's accurate, but he doesn't mention the benefits of fossil fuels to agriculture, even though fossil fuels are the basis of modern fertilizer and modern machine-based agriculture, where one combine harvester can do a hundred, a thousand times, a thousand times the work of a good manual laborer. So how can you talk about fo fossil fuels and agriculture without talking about the benefits? You're going to make terrible decisions. And guess what we're seeing right now? We've restricted fossil fuel use around the world, and we're seeing soaring agricultural prices in part because people didn't consider the benefits. So this expert idea that we should rapidly eliminate fossil fuels should be very, very suspect. And we can't cling to, oh, the expert said it, because it's really our knowledge system said the expert said it, and our knowledge system can be very, very wrong. I mean, another thing that I thought was interesting about the way um, you talk about how climate science and issues about energy get communicated is um, even just on, on the claims that science, the, you know, the people in the field doing the research, the things that are known about human impact on climate. When you, when you look at the body of the thousand pages of the actual reports, what you see is very different from what gets communicated about what those reports are claiming. This is part of what you're, you're saying here, that, that the, 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 actual, the, the state of knowledge about what's actually happening regarding human impact on the climate is actually very, um, it, it does not lead to the conclusion that this is a world-ending catastrophe that we need to, you know, take drastic measures immediately to resolve. You get a very, you get very sober and reasonable um, insights into what's happening that, you know, could inform reasonable decision making. But, but then by the time that gets communicated through the rest of the knowledge system and out in the media, all of a sudden, people are told it's a world-ending catastrophe in ten years. Yeah, I mean, I think this has gotten worse over time. So with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, even the reports themselves are pretty skewed. So one thing I mentioned is that none of the reports mention that we're safer from climate than ever. So, you know, there's very clearly documented decline, rapid decline in climate-related disaster deaths. So from storms and floods, extreme temperatures, wildfires, et cetera. So it's down, you know, about 98% over the last century in terms of the rate. And it's clearly connected to fossil fuels, like fossil fuels help us keep warm when it's cold and cool when it's hot, and they help us do irrigation to alleviate drought, et cetera, et cetera. And yet there's no mention of this in thousands of pages. So you've got a climate report, and it doesn't mention that we're safer than ever from climate. So the reports themselves are a mess, but when they are covering the sort of science, particularly of what's happened so far, yeah, I would agree. It's, it's at least fairly sober. They have a lot more weasel words now about like, oh, this, this is, they're just trying to, there are clearly people at every stage trying to make the most of it, but you're, you're right. Your basic point is right that the, the way it's disseminated is beyond anything. So for example, the head of the UN, this guy Guterres, he called it code red for humanity. And there was nothing in the assessment report working group one that resembled that, but that's what everyone said. If you, if you search like code red for humanity, that was in practically every publication 
And so that's how a knowledge system can malfunction. Something that would be, even if it's exaggerated, would not be a catastrophe at all. And then it's treated as an apocalypse by that level of, by, by distortion from synthesis to dissemination. Yeah. So, so let's turn to the Washington Post article. I think it's worth kind of digging into what is actually in the article and, and kind of responding to it and looking at it in some detail. Um, I mean, what's interesting is that, you know, obviously and unsurprisingly, um, the, the article takes for granted and just assumes the standard perspective that people have about climate and energy. Um, but, but what's interesting is that it sort of, it proceeds as though you haven't written a 400 page book that gives an argument challenging, you know, all those aspects of, the, of that narrative. So just one quote uh, from later in the article, Epstein's argument that burning fossil fuels will not cause serious harm runs counter to conclusions of leading scientists who say the world must rapidly phase out fossil fuels and slash greenhouse gas emissions to stave off worsening floods, heat waves, and other climate disasters. Now it's put as, you know, Epstein's argument that burning fossil fuels, blah, blah, blah. But we don't get a, a glimpse of what your actual argument is. So, do, do you want to respond to this, uh, what she's saying here and the, and the points that she's making? Sure. And I, I think this is a really important thing. And I noticed this also, I didn't send this to you guys, but the, the LA Times had a brief thing on this that, uh, that I, I, I commented on on Twitter as well. And it had the same thing where it's like, oh, Epstein makes this argument. It conveniently leaves out like climate and pollution. It's like, no, I have an argument about all of those things and I've had that for years, so you can disagree with it. But in, they're saying to them, the argument is just a claim that runs counter to the alleged consensus. And then they're like, oh, but so the answer to my argument is that it runs counter to the consensus. So yeah, I mean, here, people probably listening are somewhat familiar with my work. Uh, you know, but the basic idea is to determine what you should do with fossil fuels, you need to look carefully at the benefits and the side effects. And so part of this alleged conclusion of alleged leading scientists, it says nothing about the benefits of fossil fuels. So that's a huge thing. So even if worsening floods were worsening, heat waves were worsening, other climate disasters were worsening, as physical phenomena, that doesn't justify rapidly phasing out fossil fuels if you know the full scope of the benefits. And then in particular, if you understand that they have massive climate, what I call climate mastery benefits, so they can take a flood and neutralize it. They can take a heat wave and neutralize it. They can take a drought and neutralize it. And what we've seen so far, and what I emphasize over and over, is we're obviously right now in a climate renaissance. That is, we're far safer than ever from climate. We experience climate as much more livable. And any argument about the future has to acknowledge our incredible mastery ability. What I do in the book is I look at what's our mastery, what are our mastery abilities? What can we expect them to be? And then what can we expect to happen climate-wise? And I show that even in the most extreme, like at all mainstream projections, those are very much masterable and are nothing resembling an apocalypse or even catastrophic. And so we should be using more fossil fuels. But so that's an outline. She's not engaging that uh, at all. Yeah. So the so that so the, the fact that they ignore your argument is is bad. But I think the worst part and what makes this a hit piece is. Um, when they start to bring in these these insinuations of of uh, bad motives and 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 biases on your part, um, and you know it's always in the form of it's always very vague. So the so I, just to, just to give some other quotes from the article, the defense of fossil fuels Epstein has helped inject into this debate has previously been dismissed by critics as ethnocentric and paternalistic. Now. You know, we're, who, we're not told who these critics are, right? We actually reached out to Maxine Joslau, the author of this Washington Post article. We wrote to her to ask if she can provide references. You know, who are these critics that are making these claims? We didn't get a reply from her. I mean, do you have any idea who she's referring to? Or I, I assume it's just, this is I, I speak or I want to make an insinuation without <laughs> evidence. And I haven't even heard this particular criticism much because the thing is that they, I mean, the ethnocentric thing is bizarre, but, but like the paternalistic thing, because it often, I think it touches a nerve for them because it goes the opposite way. Like people, there, it is an increasingly popular argument legitimately to say, hey, people will put it as like, who are we to tell 
these poor countries that they shouldn't industrialize like we did. Like for example, Steve Coonan, the physicist who wrote the book Unsettled, uh, mentioned my name in this connection. He mentioned it on Joe Rogan. So that's a, a place where it got some prominence. Uh, yeah, I was I was curious when you guys read this, particularly uh, Ankar, like when you, how do you think you would have seen this article assuming you didn't know me at all? Well, I read critically. So the yeah, this article had, it had so many references. And when you get a sentence like the, the defense of fossil fuels Epstein has helped inject into the debate has previously, so the previously is the big, I didn't go and try to dig up something. So the, this has been going on and I'm just reporting it as the kind, it's the atmosphere and has been dismissed by critics as ethnocentric and paternalistic. No reference. That should raise your red flags that it, it's the things that have reference in the article and this has none when yet it's such a major claim. And then the paternalistic, as you're bringing up, it's so stupid to be that there has to be an agenda here that it's if paternalism means you're treating people like children and telling them what to do and if the view is stop telling people in the developing world that they can't use fossil fuels this is what we use to develop they should be free to do it and to label that as paternalistic if there were previously critics saying this her view should be these critics are idiots if this is what they've been saying for, and yet it's just reported like, no, okay, this is um, so, and I'm just now reporting further things in the same vein. And it, it that is not real journalism. And it's hard to view it as honest. The ethnocentric, I'm can, it's not true, but I can project more someone thinking in honest or semi-honest terms that, yeah, there, there's some, you criticize West, I mean, you said Western culture is better than other cultures. And uh, I've been told that's ethnocentric and so, but the paternalistic, like there's no grounds at all for it. And yet it can just be thrown in without any evidence, without any reference that tells you something. Yeah, and uh, I mean, let us know when you get that response, Keith. I'm sure it's well. I'm tempted. Any day I'm tempted to say, you know, when asked to specify which critics advanced these views, Ms. Jocelyn declined to comment further, <laughs> which is the kind of language that they use, yeah. you know, uh, they use against you in the piece. Um, yeah. And so, the, so I'll the, just uh, say this. So, I take it. I don't know what happened, but when you see something like this, I take it as the washington post or the, some of the report were involved in trying to dig up dirt not it's oh yeah we're just reporting the story and we had five different people tell us oh look what he wrote when he was 1890 it, it's they're actively looking for that and so the next question has to be do you do this with all the, the experts and books you're reviewing do you go into spend how, how many ever hours reading stuff they wrote at 18 and 19? Like, is this your standard journalistic practice? And the idea that it is, is, I mean, I think pretty close to zero. So it's, we don't like what you're saying. And rather than deal with the arguments, like a real journalist would have been, yeah, this book says a whole bunch of things that are, I've not heard before. They're certainly not mainstream. Let me go talk to experts of, here's the argument. What would you say in response to this argument? Not, can I find people who can find some dirt from when it was 1890? Like that's not a serious concern with the issues. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to get to next because that's the worst part of the article. The attempt to imply that these college writings of, of yours express some sort of bigotry, which is not, which is totally false, um, you know, Quoting from the article again, now, now they, I guess the unnamed critics, are pointing to newly resurfaced articles he wrote in 1999 while in college that dismissed non-Western cultures as inferior, saying they raised further questions about whether his argument is rooted in a, quote, moral concern for developing nations or is a cynical attempt to promote the use of oil, coal, and natural gas. And I wanted to pause on that as an alternative. Is the argument rooted in a moral concern for developing nations, or is it a cynical attempt to promote the use of oil, 
coal and natural gas. I mean, Ankar or Alex, well, what do you guys think of that? Yeah, I mean, I'm interested in what Ankar yeah. has to say. About this one. <laughs> if if you take the the headline of the article, now the journalist doesn't always um, have control over the title, but it's advocate promotes fossil fuels for poor nations he once disparaged. Now, if the disparagement were, was, you people in the developing world, you suck, you'll never be able to do anything, nobody should be concerned with it, you don't need freedom, you don't need industry, you won't do anything with it, then it could be, is now saying like he's got some concern for what happens in these, to think, well, does he really, or is it a smokescreen for something else? But if the view is that it's something like, um, Western culture has made certain advances that have not been made in other cultures. And you could take two of the biggest ones, the science and industrial revolution and the pro-freedom and freedom respecting governments that has enabled people in the West to prosper. And that if anybody adopted these ideas, you could prosper too. And that's what we should be telling the people in the developing world, the idea that that is like, this discredits you that you thought that they're not developed, and this is how you, they could develop. It's just, it's, it's again, it's, it's not a serious um, attempt to think of well, what is the viewpoint here? What is the argument? It's, here's something that goes counter to the mainstream that I can use or hope to use to smear. I mean, that is uh, the, the so so even if you dig up writings of 1819, still your responsibility to actually read them and think what they say and to think is it consistent and can I get a view that is consistent with what's being said now and what's being said then versus just I can quote something out of context that seems to to discredit the person. Yeah, I mean the idea is you know. Another quote, Epstein's critic said his college writings undermine his argument for fossil fuels. So what's the most allegedly damning thing they can find? Without mentioning race or ethnicity, he claimed that Western culture's achievements far surpass those of other cultures. Well, that is your argument for fossil fuels, that the industrial, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, and the resulting you know, explosion in the length of quality of human life, which is an achievement of Western culture, is precisely what the argument is for why we need more fossil fuels. We need to be bringing them to the whole world. Uh, and this is how poor countries are going to develop. But that is your argument. It doesn't undermine your argument. And yes. that sentence, I just, oh, that sentence oh, it above others is such, an, the, it really is an example of the art of smearing. Um, it's, without mentioning race or ethnicity it's it's what that is meant to imply of course race and ethnicity are driving the argument but he doesn't mention them and that is he doesn't mention them because they're not driving the argument and yet just that that kind of simple way of putting it is yeah we all know that's what's driving it without giving any evidence that that's what's driving it and that is I didn't say you said it. I'm just saying it's in the background. It, it, it's it's such um, non-objective, dishonest reporting to have a sentence like that. And then just two additional pieces of context here that just make it even more outrageous. So one is that I, you know, before this came out, we'll talk about the details. But you know, when I I, I received an outline of this piece that was infinitely worse and and used explicitly called me racist. Uh, in advance of this, and then I, you know, I preempted it, which we'll talk about. But in that preemption, which I, you know, I made a transcript available, I sent it, you know, it was just obviously there. I sent it to them immediately before the piece came out. I mean, well before the piece ended up coming out, but even before it was supposed to come out, like I explicitly said over and over and over, culture is not the same as race. Culture is about ideas. It has nothing to do with skin color. And I just said that over and over and over. So what is I explicitly? disentangled these things. Then, and the other thing is, if we're going back to college, 
by far the easiest thing of mine to find in college are the articles that I wrote in the Duke Chronicle, which was the major newspaper at Duke. And you can easily find them. You can, you can find them on Google. And there is an article called Judging Cultures is Not Racism, where I have to say for an 18 or 19 year old, I think it's 19, like it is pretty damn good at explaining this issue clearly. So uh, it's another case where I think anyone reading this article should get the sense of this is not an attempt to understand me. It's an attempt to destroy me. But like even on the level of the college writings, I was so clear about this issue and they're just deliberately trying to misunderstand me. Yeah, well, let's, so Ankar, you wanted to say some things about the mindset sort of behind this article. Um, I think this is a natural place to, to get into that now. One thing that leaps off the page for me is the, you're dealing with the religious mentality. And I think unfortunately for the whole climate issue and more broadly environmentalism, it is heavily dosed with a religious mentality. And it is as against what? As against the scientific mentality. Is there an attempt to understand here? Is there any interest in trying to understand? And what you get, I think, is from the article and what happened in, in the run-up to the article, but just even if you didn't know the backstory, just from the article, there's no interest in trying to understand. There's no interest in trying to understand the arguments in the book. There's no interest in trying to understand the past views or and then to try to understand the relationship of past views to current views. And so there's no engagement with argument and no engagement with really thinking what is the evidence like so one of the things that, that came up already in the discussion of this but that the book should really anybody reading it even if you're pro environmentalism you're think of yourself as my career as a reporter is to sort of advance this agenda and so if you get that um the climate related deaths are orders of magnitude down as a result of industrial civilization. If that doesn't cause you to, like, why haven't I heard this elsewhere? Why isn't this part of the whole discussion? And so, if that doesn't invoke any curiosity in you, then you have to ask, are you trying to understand? Are you really genuinely trying to understand the issue? And the stakes are high. If you're going to say to the third world, um, and there's part in the article is, Oh yeah, we're not saying they shouldn't have energy and so on, but it shouldn't be fossil fuels. And there's all their alternatives. Part of the book is arguing, are there really other alternatives in the short term? And if you were seriously concerned with that, it would be a major issue. Like if we're wrong about that, it has massive impact on millions and millions of lives. And yet there's no attempt really to engage with any of that. So then it, you have to ask, well, what is going on? if it's not an attempt to understand. And I think of it, this is what a religious person's mentality is. It's, I've heard something that's against our faith. And if it really is a faith, I can't address it by arguments. I can't point to the counter evidence or things that is being left out and so on. It's someone's attacking my faith and I'm gonna attack them. And you have to go and attack the person because the whole field of argument isn't really real to you. It's not how I reached my view. It's not how I look at someone else. So, and it's, it's like, if you've read about the wars of religion in Europe I mean, and it, the, the hatred of the Protestants towards Catholics and vice versa. And so it's, it's what you don't get is a whole field of arguments and counter arguments and what's the evidence. It, it is your, your view the person as, um, a heretic, if we put it in different terms, as a witch, who you have to drive out. And that is like that's the atmosphere here. And that's a religious mentality, not a mentality that's interested in evidence, arguments, science, and actually understanding. One one quick uh, addition to that that I noticed, because I, I have to say, even I've dealt with this issue a long time, and even I was a little bit surprised 
by the response of the journalism uh, community, which I, I've documented a bit on Twitter. And in particular, so, you know, I, I had called for, like, I, this is really bad when, when the, you know, original planned hit piece was there, when I, when I saw the outline of it and I exposed it and I said, like, hey, I don't think this journalist should be employed. Certainly the Post should apologize and they should really reform. And, you know, their response was a day or two later to, to condemn me and to condemn everyone else who defended me, which is, you know, hundreds of people. And they got all these eloquent letters and they called it online harassment. And in particular, they described it as baseless accusations. And yet, you know, I made an hour long video with the primary source documents of mine, of theirs, et cetera. And so many other journalists, including climate journalists, just repeated this idea of you are attacking Maxine Joslow with baseless accusations. And it was, I have to say, I was even a little surprised by that as low a regard as I have for, for most climate journalists. I think it's a problematic field because climate is such a long-term phenomenon. So if you're quote, reporting on it on a daily basis, it's probably an activist thing. But I, I just thought, how could you call it baseless when it, I, I mean, the accusation could be you spent too much time showing the basis uh, of it. And it really just, it, it really had this religious or cult-like feel to it, which is just like, you attacked one of ours, and I'm going to use these words, baseless, baseless accusations, to attack you, even though they're, they're the most inappropriate words you could use. You could say false, and none of them, not one of them tried to refute me at all. Literally, not one of them. Yeah, so let's get into the backstory a little bit because we talked about what the the article that ended up getting published, but there was you already alluded to the fact that there was there that you got advance notice that there was going to be an article and what was in what was likely to be in the article was likely to be much worse than what actually ended up getting published. So do, do you want to just kind of give us the backstory a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So the backstory is, you know, I have a book fossil future coming out may 24th we have a major publisher called portfolio which is part of penguin random house we have a big publicist and so they send copies of the book to major people including you know leading climate reporter at the washington post maxine joslow okay so that's a standard thing to do and then pretty soon after she got the book we got this thing or i got this thing from the publicist which came from her which said you know we're sending this as a courtesy it's coming out i got it monday morning it was supposed to come out you know, 3 a.m. my time, 6 a.m. Eastern Wednesday. So essentially maybe 24 hours to respond. And they didn't interview me for the story. It's just, do you have a comment? Uh, and then I see this story, so-called story, you know, and it, 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 it's just an infinitely worse version of what we've described uh, before, because it's clearly, we worked with this group documented to dig up this stuff. I mean, this is my words describing it. You can see in my videos, you can see the exact email. But then it goes to, you know, these remarks about, um, you know, Western culture. There was also um, the other thing they raised here, which they didn't use in the final one, was about Martin Luther King. And so I'll just say that the quick version was that I had individual, just like I had individualist criticisms of non-Western cultures, I had certain individualist criticisms of Martin Luther King, in particular, his support of certain kinds of welfare policies, race preference policies that I argued were bad for ended up being bad for black individuals, were not just. And then also I was very critical of him for being very close to the communist party, which I argued was a very uh, bad thing. And that, that was all they had. They had those two things. So I was critical of non-Western cultures for the reason, for the individualist reasons we've discussed. And then I had certain criticisms of Martin Luther King. And so they went, they, they, you know, they were quoting that in kind of the most inflammatory way for them. But then the key was they got two academics, one from Harvard, one from Stanford, to say, that my comments were racist. So this was really the thing that they had. They have these prestigious academics, I think probably black academics, who you know run these um, you know race-based centers at these at these schools. And so the idea is then that's so definitive, right? It seems so definitive that they're saying like he has a clear racial bias for uh, you know in favor of great white figures. That was one of them. Another one just described was described as racism attributed to the guy. And so that was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, wow, this is really designed to do some damage. And then they went into what we've seen, a, a more extreme version of what we've seen so far, which is this discredits his arguments. And then at the end they had, and I, I found this humorously absurd, but it was meant to discredit me. At the end, they had an energy person discrediting me, basically saying, well, he's said all these false things about energy, but it was the least credible guy possible because it was a somebody who's not an energy expert at all. He's a climate scientist and activist named Andrew Dessler. 
And then B, the guy had just been in a debate with me like two weeks before. And if you look at the YouTube comments, most, at least most people there didn't think he did that well. And we had another thing where he didn't do that well. So in any case, quoting a non-energy expert who has a huge ax to grind is like the least objective thing. So I'm laughing at about it now, but when I saw it, it was scary at the beginning because I'm thinking like, this is clearly a hit piece. There's nothing I can say to this writer that's going to persuade her because clearly the intent is to destroy me. It's not to understand me. And I just thought about it and I thought, you know what, the only, if I, if I comment directly, they're going to mangle it or ignore it. If I comment to her privately, if I don't comment, they're going to say, we reached out to Alex Epstein for comment. He had no comment. So I see him evasive. So I realized, and now it seems obvious, but it took me an hour or two to figure it out. The only thing to do was to preemptively and publicly comment, but not just comment, but to totally expose this endeavor, to refute everything and to condemn it. And then, you know, really to make demands and to say what the just course of action, which I said that the journalist should be fired, the Post should apologize, and they should really uh, reform. And, you know, I did think that was a just thing to do. I, I didn't, you know, it, it, was, it was hard to believe that they would do that, but it, it's like, this is so bad that you're doing this to me. And like, I'm so clearly innocent here. And so it's interesting to see. And, and, you know, the great thing was that a lot of people came to my defense. I did, I reached out to a lot of influential people that I know, including Michael Schellenberger, who's a, you know, another energy environmental expert and is currently running for governor of California. And he happened to be on Joe Rogan, I think the day that I sent it to him. So it got exposed on Joe Rogan, the, the tweet, I made this whole video thread. It got, you know, 2 million impressions. Uh, it got covered by a lot of different people. I ended up doing TV and, you know, the, it, and what happened is the, the piece didn't come out when I was supposed to. And then it, day after day after day went by. And then it finally came out one week later in this very, very diluted form where it was not very popular, influential. Some of the usual kind of climate catastrophist subjects, suspects tried to promote it, but didn't get very far. They're still running ads for it, which I find suspicious. They're running ads for a dud of a piece when you search my name. When you search my name, you also get another organization running hit ads saying, Alex Epstein, climate science denier. Uh, but yeah, I was able by telling the truth. So by commenting publicly in response to a planned hit piece, I was able to preempt it. And I was really able to tell the true story, which is the Washington Post is trying to uh, do a hit piece against me through this false accusation of racist. That became the story versus the story, new documents reveal Alex Epstein as a racist. And so we don't have to listen to him on fossil fuels. So I'm, I'm hoping that this example really inspires others who are the innocent victims of this kind of hit piece or cancellation attempt to do the same instead of complying with the system that if you just comment to them in their own little world, they're just going to eviscerate you. Yeah, no, there's, there's an element of luck here in that you did get advance warning and so you were, you were able to preempt the, the thing. But I think- Yeah, the, it happens to others though. Well, it happens to others because they want your sanction. Like they want you to participate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they want to say, hey, more we, we asked him if it were true. It was true. Yeah, and I, I think the more important lesson is is um, the way. Like, I think you did a really good job of of owning the message and and seizing the moral high ground in in this issue, which um, a lot of people I think don't necessarily have the right have the kind of framework to be able to do that. Um, I mean, I, I would also put. The, so I watched what you, your, I forget, the hour long or when it came out. And the, the contrast between even like this story watered down, the just, uh, I would say dishonesty, but I'll just put it, the non-honesty, the non-interest in actually figuring out things. In contrast, your response was that... Um, yeah, I don't agree with everything that I said when I was 18, 19. Who does? Um, that doesn't make that what I said was racist. I agree with a lot of it still. I would some things I would put differently, I would emphasize differently. And so it was an actual attempt to um look, this is what it would look like to think about it versus what they're doing. And I think the most telling aspect that I mean of how bad this is is the accusation against someone that they're racist is a major accusation. And you have to be serious about that. You have to actually think you have evidence for this. And 
someone pushing back wouldn't cause you to now drop it from the story. Like if you really thought this, this you would still report it. And maybe you would think, okay, I need more to say more about this. You wouldn't just drop it from the story. And that's part of what makes it so clear that this is just a smear and the attempt to intimidate. And the idea that that's what journalism is about is, again, I mean, it's such a travesty that that is, could even be contemplated. Um, and the, so the part of what you did that to call for, like this person should be fired or reprimanded is right because the, it's not a serious accusation and yet it should, it's a serious charge against someone. And there are racists in the world. Um, but part of what is happening is the, this accusation now is going to, um, it's more and more meaningless because they use it not because they actually think someone is a racist, but because they think this is a way to intimidate people. And that again is the religious kind of mentality. It's we don't have to actually figure this out. We just want to intimidate our opponents. We know who are, are heretics. Our heretics. We got it. We had a question on Facebook that is is um, that I thought was interesting. I don't have it in front of me, but I'm just the, the 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 implication of the question is in your response, you called for the article not to be published, the reporter to be fired, and something else, and none of that actually happened. So was this really a success if none of the goals of <laughs> your stated goals were were achieved? And I mean, my reaction to that was none of those are the actual goal. The goal is to get ahead of the message, you know, to seize the moral high ground and to clarify the distortions before they're even made public. Um, but did you did you have a thoughts on that? Yeah, I saw. I, I, there's a someone wrote a blog about this. Uh, I mean, yeah. So those aren't my goals. They were my demands. So you know, I try to not to set goals that are totally dependent on other people. So my real, you know, my number one goal was to neutralize a real threat. So I just want to, I mean, Ankar mentioned, you know, how serious it is to call somebody a racist. It's doubly true. I mean, it's, it's true because it's such a, you know, such a bad thing to be. And it's such a disastrous thing to be in terms of it's viewed that way as, as a practical consequence. So imagine this story comes out. It's the Washington Post, one of the most powerful institutions in the world. And it is, has, has the word racist, racism, like associated with me. And there's clearly a drive behind it, as we saw later. I mean, they're putting ad dollars behind this. There are multiple groups involved. Like, there's clearly a drive to spread this, which means they're going to use, they already have big reach. They're going to spread it far and wide. You know, that is a scary thing to have associated. And so what's going to happen? You know, I have a major publisher. Now they have, you know, they have courage often, but like they're going to at least call for the publisher to drop the book. They're going to call for me to make an apology. They're going to push retailers to drop the book, which is probably their easiest route. They're going to do all of these different things. And so for me, the number one goal was neutralize this threat to me, my career, and this book that I have worked so hard on and that I want as many people as possible to see. So that was the number one thing. And I knew that part of achieving that goal was calling clearly for justice. So I stated clearly what justice was. You don't just call for justice when you are guaranteed success. So if like you call for justice and you're able to head off something really bad, uh, there's a certain amount of success. But yeah, I would have liked to win more. But it's very rare that anyone wins to the degree that I did. Because the other thing that happened is so many people rallied around me. And you know, the book got so many thousands of sales, people got interested in it, they got interested in its message, um, you know, got a lot getting a lot more media opportunity now. And also my other goal, which I had talked about in the original video is, is I want to, I think I did it in, in several of the videos I have, I want to help other people who are the victims of these unjust cancellation attempts to fight back. And I think I provided a model. So I would love to know of anyone else who's done anything like this. Uh, and maybe someone has done it better, but I, I haven't, I haven't seen it. And, and you know, Scott Adams, the Dilbert, uh, writer and you know persuasion expert like he had a couple of really nice comments on his show about like i've never seen anyone do this like actually stop or defang a hit piece not by going behind the scenes and you're a billionaire or something like that but actually stop it and for him he said you know this is personal for me i feel like i've been the victim of these things 
And so, yeah, I, I do consider it a really uh, big victory and I would like to improve my strategy in the future, but I think the main thing is there's a lot to learn from this strategy. Yeah, so one of the questions, we're, we're starting to get some questions over Zoom and on YouTube. Um, one of the questions is in the outcome of the situation, which do you think ultimately had more influence in the culture, the attack piece or your defense and counterattack? It sounds like you're saying that in the end, um, you know, this helped promote the book. It helped drive sales. Yeah, there's no, there's no question. I don't, I don't even think it's ten to. I don't even think it's ten to one. I think it's more than that. And and in part, the piece is a joke. Like there's nothing in it. It's just so such a dumb piece. And that's part of why that there are a bunch of people who are trying to promote it, but they're not getting any traction because it's just so weak. And you see the better, you know, the best comments from my perspective are people who are like, oh, yeah, I'm a socialist. I don't agree with this Epstein guy, but this is ridiculous that this is the way you're trying to attack him. So I don't think in the adverses, if you have a piece with academics and racism and it gets spread to millions of people, call, you know, calling me racist, like that, that does some real damage. But no, I don't think this piece has done any real damage. And I think the response made it good. But it doesn't mean, doesn't mean, oh, the piece helped me. It means responding this way helps me. Because so future victims of this don't think, oh, they're doing a hit piece on me. It's going to be fantastic. It's not going to be fantastic unless you deal with it properly. Yeah. Uh, we got another question, uh, someone asking whether whether it would be appropriate or make sense to add a postscript to the book to talk about this incident. And I mean, I mean, I mean, my view is I wouldn't. Why draw more attention to this than it deserves? The books should stand. Well, on also, own. you know, it's hard, it's hard enough to get this book has been delayed so many times for different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine the publisher saying like, hey, let's stop the presses so we can put this hit piece. No, I, mean, I do think it's notable. <laughs> the book that like this is a book that the Washington Post tried to cancel like that's that definitely happened and and there's going to be more stories like this and I think it's what's really notable is that no one is engaging the arguments of the book and I think that's really there's a fear of it and nobody's engaging the arguments to to paraphrase Scott Adams again you know, he said like you don't do this with a book that's not good in the sense of like, it's gonna influence people. Like they're not just doing this with random books. Like this is a book they're afraid of, but no, I don't, I mean, Keith, I really appreciate what you said at the beginning about arguments people haven't heard. Like, you know, for some books, this is gonna, I don't know how to make this sound uh, not immodest, but like for some books, like this is the most exciting thing that happens. Oh, there's a news story, but like, no, I think this is the best energy book out in the world right now. And I want everyone to read it because it's good. And I was totally happy spending that week just emailing people and asking them if they're interested in the book. Like that would be plenty for the book to become a blockbuster. It does not need this. But if people are going to come this way at me, I'm sure as hell not going to let my book get destroyed by them. And I'm going to make the most of the situation. But the book doesn't need like, I don't need to be an anti-cancel warrior for this book to be as clarifying as it is and, and as valuable as it will be to, you know, hopefully hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, I think it, it's it's the arguments in the book that that underwrite the moral stance you're able to take in response to cancel culture. I mean, one of the these groups, you know, I, I don't know that much about them, but I but just looking a little bit at documented and dismog and there's a there's a there's another one these climate investigations. These guys, their their whole funding model and their whole job basically is to try to dig up alleged you know fossil fuel industry funding and that kind of thing and and it's all premised on the idea that everybody knows that fossil fuels are evil anybody who works in them is evil um i think you know the the fact that you have a polar opposite perspective on that that you recognize the value that this industry brings you know the role that it plays in human flourishing and human well-being that's what underwrites your ability when they ask you you know do you get funding from fossil fuel companies your response is yeah i i proudly work with them, you know, and then, you know, by contract, they don't influence my contact content, but yeah, I, I'm, 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 I'm proud to work with these moral heroes. Um, it, it's, it's the fact that it's the ideas that you're presenting in the book that underwrite your ability to have that perspective, um, even on these attempts to cancel you, I think. And I would add, I would add uh, to that, I mean, because this is an Ayn Rand Institute podcast, I think it's very important that I have, you know, the objectivist perspective on individualism, you know, because so, so much of the power of this is the racism part. And, you know, 
I've always been an individualist and from a pretty young age could sort of articulate that. And certainly once I read Ayn Rand, I could articulate it really well and just understood that racism is the opposite of individualism. You know, Ayn Rand would say it's like the lowest form of most primitive form of collectivism. And so just totally internalizing that is so valuable for confidence in this kind of situation. Because I just have 100% confidence that I am the exact opposite of a racist. And furthermore, I know that the anyone who accuses who calls Western ideas white, I know that they have deeply racist uh, views themselves. That's not calling them like an active racist, but they have racist views. And so that, you know, that clarity is so important because, you know, what I think what you find is that if you are clear enough morally on the issues, you almost inevitably stand up in these situations. And when you're not, it's really hard. So for example, in the fossil fuel industry, historically, they haven't stood up very well. And my view is it's because they haven't been clear on the issues. And now you're seeing more and more CEOs stand up, I think in large part because of the work I've done, and it's that moral clarity. So you know, I'm very grateful that I had not just the clarity on energy, but I had the clarity on these issues of individualism and skin color. So there was not one hesitation in my mind or body about I'm in the right here, and this is a totally wrong assault, and I can clearly articulate it to the world. Yeah, I mean, it's a cliche that the that a good offense is the best defense, but I think this incident shows that in spades, um, I would say. Ankar, did you have any last thoughts before we we're getting close to our time here? And I know, Alex, you've got another interview to get to. So, yeah, you guys can uh, you guys can have up. a pre after party, but I have I have a call with the publisher at 11. OK, so Ankar, did you have any? Final oh, yeah, I want to hear Ankar's final thoughts. Um. Well, to go back to the knowledge system and how badly it's operating here, you have an industry that has revolutionized the world, that has made possible industrialization on a scale that was undreamt of, even at, I think at the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, that we would be where we are today um, with air travel, computers, the internet, all made possible by modern energy production, which is essentially fossil fuel, that you have people who are uh, not just oblivious to that, but hostile to that. They don't feel the need to mention it ever in any discussions or arguments. And they feel the need to attack people who do mention it. That, that something has gone dramatically wrong with the knowledge, and particularly on the evaluative perspective, that someone who brings up the fact that without uh, fossil fuels, the modern world would not exist. And that that is something that you're doing something really evil. And the people who ignore that day in and day out that they're in the right, and the, these are the people we should be following. So, on. that the, there's, if people are on the fence about this issue, they should read the book because something is really going wrong in the in our the, the way we're being told and told to think about these issues. All right. Well, uh, I think we should wrap up here. So uh, I'll start by just saying thanks for joining us, Alex, and thanks for, for being here as well, Ankar. Um, I just want to end with, you know, the our usual giving some resources and things like that. So I think, you know, the main thing uh, that people, I don't want to link to a whole bunch of articles, because I think the main takeaway here is you should read Alex's book when it comes out. Pre-order it because you know that helps the publisher know how much demand there is for it. But um, as I said, I'm about three quarters of the way through it. It's a really, really important, really powerful book. So if there's one thing I want to send people to, it's buy the book, read it, give it to all your friends, you know, drop it from airplanes, whatever. Um, that, <laughs> that's that's what uh, I want to send people to. Um, just a reminder that Ankar and I are going to hop on to Clubhouse um, right after this podcast. We'll find out how the broadcast has been going so far. And then if people are there and want to keep talking, we can do that. Um, just a heads up, next week, uh, we're actually doing a whole series of podcast episodes leading up to Earth Day. Next Friday just happens to be Earth Day. 
So we're on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, we're going to do episodes of New Ideal live with different speakers, different, uh, different topics. Um, and then that'll culminate in an episode next Friday on Earth Day itself. So join us for that. Um, also a reminder, we're, we're, we, have a, we do these Q&A episodes every now and then. If people have questions about objectivism, um, anything they want to know about, about Ayn Rand's philosophy, um, we have our staff philosophers answering those questions. So send in your questions. Um, we, and, and you know, there's a dedicated opportunity to talk about those, get those answered. Um, also a reminder that we're doing a, this is another new thing we're doing is a fundraising campaign. On, if you're watching this on YouTube, we have a donate box. Uh, we have like a fundraising goal. We're trying to raise $5,000 this month. I think uh, we already have about $200 raised through that donate button. So thank you to anybody who has used that already. Um, and if anybody used our super chat on YouTube, I don't know if we did, but thank you for uh, the super chat people. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to subscribe to the channel on YouTube, click the bell to get notifications. Um, if you're watching the recording, please like, comment, share on the episode, helps us attract new viewers. Um, our channel, I, my understanding is our channel just got over 80,000 subscribers. So that's great. We want to get to 100,000. So uh, make sure you subscribe. Um, please consider doing the same if you're watching on Facebook. If you have questions, comments about today's episode, uh, if you have ideas for future episodes, send us an email at newideal@einrand.org. We read all the emails. We reply to as many of them as we can. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Okay, so once again, thanks for joining us, Alex, and thanks, Ankar. And Thank Ankar, you. I'll see you on Clubhouse. And Alex, we'll have to do this again sometime. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. See you soon. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.